Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo podcast, the parent show to the spin-off limited series podcast. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, please check out Pantheon. I guarantee you'll be able to find a podcast that interests you. Please go to pantheonpodcasts.com for a full list of their offerings. On this episode, Chris returns, and you're probably just as happy as I am for that. Writing and recording these episodes is no joke. It's exhausting. This week, Chris covers the giant of the jazz piano, Art Tatum. Stay tuned after the episode for Chris's listening suggestions. And here is your host, Chris. As much as I love Monk's style and sound, as much as I love how McCoy Tyner compliments John Coltrane's flights and explorations, as much as I marvel at Oscar Peterson's prowess, Art Tatum is the greatest piano player I've ever heard. I'm not alone in this thinking. Leonard Feather's book, The Encyclopedia of Jazz in the 60s, took a poll of musicians at the time. Two of the questions were as follows. One, he asked 126 pianists of the day to name their primary influence. 78 of the 126 answered with Art Tatum. Two, in a poll conducted among 100 of the most famous jazz musicians of the time, 68 placed Art Tatum first in their list of preferences. Not Bird, not Miles, not Duke, not Satchmo Armstrong. They preferred Tatum's music to even their own music. You couldn't get that much consensus on anything today. But back in the day, Musicians understood that as great and as talented as all their contemporaries were, one man stood above the rest. Charlie Parker took a job washing dishes where Tatum played just to listen to him play every night. Decades later, Herbie Hancock stated that there were still some things that Art Tatum had done on piano that people hadn't figured out quite yet. Sergei Rachmaninoff called Tatum the finest piano player in the world, regardless of genre. Another legendary classical music pianist and composer, Vladimir Horowitz, said, If Art Tatum took up classical music seriously, I'd quit my job the next day. Speaking of quitting... And a friend of mine came over to me, and at that time I was playing piano with Jackie Gleason. And uh, I had my trio, and uh, I was destined to be, in my mind, a piano player. And a friend of mine came over to me and he says, I hope you're sitting down because I got a record that I want you to hear. And uh, it was a humoresque or St. Louis blues, one of those numbers of Art Tatum. And I heard Art Tatum for the first time and I went into shock. I could not believe what I heard. And I quit playing the piano right then and there and went to the guitar. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Les Paul, pioneer of the solid body electric guitar, innovator in the recording studio, guitarist extraordinaire, creator of the Gibson Les Paul guitar. Where would 20th century music be without Art Tatum being so incredibly phenomenal, 
he made Les Paul want to quit the piano instantaneously. There's an interview Oscar Peterson does with Count Basie, where Basie tells a story about the first time he met Art Tatum. He basically says that perhaps he shouldn't have made it known to anyone that he knew how to play the piano that night. Tatum tore him to shreds. Speaking of Peterson, in an interview with pianist, composer, and conductor Andre Previn, he had this to say about Art Tatum. Other guys are out taking lumps playing football on playing piano, right? And, uh... Things haven't changed. That's right. (laughs) And uh, my dad was quietly watching all this. He was very quiet, and I never said too much. And and I think somewhere in the back of his mind, he got the feeling that uh, I was getting a little too egotistical about it. And one day he came home and he said, uh, I got something I want you to hear. You know? I said, oh, yeah. He said, it's a record. I said, yeah, what is it? And he put on the record. I'll never forget it was Art Tatum's Tiger Rag. Oh, that's enough to kill you. It almost did. Yeah. And truthfully, I didn't play piano. I gave up the piano for two solid months and had crying fits at night. <laughs> I did. I was serious. You know, I really did. I, I, can, rem- I can vividly remember, Andre, and I, I kid you not when I say this other. I'd, you know, I'd say, you know, you see, you hear something that awesome, you say, well, first of all, it's two people. You know, right. when, you, when we got over that at thing. At least. Yeah. Right? Right. We got over that, my father said, ah, one man. And when I believed him finally. And he couldn't see, by the way. You had to bring that up, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'd, I'd go, to, go to bed at night and it, was, it haunted me. It actually haunted me that someone could play the piano this well. You know, usually technique doesn't, I think you're, you know, you're a player yourself. You know, technique is technique. You, you find it to a certain degree and you say, well, fine, he's a great technician. But the, to me, the thing with Tatum was the harmonic thought, the rhythmic thought, the, you know, the, the change of cadence suddenly, you know. And I, I really had a bad time for two months, and finally I sort of sobered up and went did back. You, did, you start, did you try to imitate him after that? No. Happily, no. I didn't. No. I, what I did was I listened, I st- as I still do, religiously. Mm. But I think, had I listened to Art Tatum, I would have become much the same as, a, as several pianists that I know in various parts of the world. Now, many, if not most of you, don't know who Oscar Peterson is but he might just be the greatest piano player in jazz history. It all depends on what you're listening for. There are some things he humbly believed he couldn't do that Tatum can. And I believe there are some things he could do that Tatum, I'm not going to say he couldn't do, but I think he chose not to. But we'll get into that later. I don't play this for all of you piano players out there to get you to question your own abilities. I just want you to be aware that there might be possibilities out there that you might not have been aware of. If you fear that you might possibly want to quit playing the piano before you hear this, I suggest you skip ahead 30 seconds or so. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the song Tiger Rag that shook a young Oscar Peterson to the core. I know I'll never play the piano again, but I never could in the first place, so that's no big loss to the world. 
Art Tatum was born in Toledo, Ohio in 1909. It's said that he started learning how to play the piano from the age of three, learning by ear, listening to the radio, and copying piano roll recordings that his mother owned. His vision had been impaired from infancy, most likely due to cataracts. For the rest of his life, he was blind in one eye and impaired in the other. By age 11, he could see objects close to him and distinguish colors. Apparently, he was a great pinochle player as well. Just another thing he could do better than I ever have. A child prodigy, he would be pulled out of school to perform at different functions. A childhood friend remembers that his style of playing would have been mostly intact by his mid-teens. Word got around about this phenomenal piano player in Toledo, and when bands came into town, they would check him out. I'm sure many wish they hadn't. He had been majorly influenced by the stride piano playing of James P. Johnson and Fats Waller. As times changed, he would incorporate other influences into his playing, like Earl Father Hines. Benny Green wrote that Tatum was the only jazz musician to attempt to conceive a style based upon all styles, to master the mannerisms of all schools, and then synthesize those into something personal. Famously, one night when Fats Waller had been playing in a club, he saw Tatum walk in the door. At that time, he announced to the patrons of the club, Ladies and gentlemen, I play the piano, but God is in the house tonight. The first thing you notice about Art Tatum's playing is his style. I don't know that I can describe it with any kind of justice. When I hear him play, it sounds like he's playing the song as if it's supposed to be played, and then his subconscious comes in and rips it to shreds. It sounds like he keeps interrupting his train of thought with other, better ideas as to what needs to be played. He goes forward and backward in time, playing the history of jazz. He's dropping bombs and trills and doing so at a speed that defies gravity. Apparently, in 1993, Jeff Bilms, I hope that's pronounced correctly, a student at MIT in the field of computational musicology, coined the word Tatum as the smallest time interval between successive notes in a rhythmic phrase, and the fastest pulse present in a piece of music. Not sure how useful that is in day-to-day conversation, but you begin to appreciate that scientists are trying to make sense of and wrap their heads around his accomplishments on the piano. In the liner notes to his seven-disc Pablo Solo Masterpieces box set, Benny Green writes, The problem always was Tatum's frightening mastery of time and his ability to subdivide it into the most deceptive segments. The listener will no doubt find time and time again that there comes a moment when he loses his grasp on the pulse of what Tatum is doing, that in tapping his foot, either mentally or physically, the beat seems to have evaporated. The explanation is quite simple. Tatum has been sliding imperceptibly from triplets to semiquavers, or from semiquavers to double triplets, or from demi-semi-quavers to grace notes. While I have no idea what that means, that sounds about right. Supposin' 
from Art Tatum's Solo Masterpieces, Volume 5 album. For some reason, I cannot talk about Art Tatum without talking about a piano player named Bill Evans. In my brain, to my ears, he is the antagonist of my explorations into jazz. He is Sherlock Holmes's Moriarty. He is Seinfeld's Newman. He is Thanos to the Avengers. Now, Bill Evans has the pedigree. Miles Davis chosen to replace Red Garland on piano for his group in 1958. The two of them conceived of the album Kind of Blue together. He had been selected to play on a similar landmark record, Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth, just two years later. If you ever ask someone for recommendation for a good piano trio album, you will inevitably be told to pick up his Sunday at the Village Vanguard album, also from 1961. It's one of those groundbreaking five-star albums you read about in any self-respecting jazz record guide. When you're a beginning listener looking for album recommendations, you want a sure thing. If you're going to spend money, if you're going to invest your time, you want that music to be worth it. For me, the surest thing had been albums with both Miles Davis and John Coltrane on it. I think I had nine or ten of them at the time, and each one had been a pure joy to listen to. Then I bought the 58 Miles album. This is the same band that would record that kind of blue record the next year. With several long tracks, some performed live, some in the studio, it looked like a slam dunk when I bought it. I hated it. It sounded boring to my ears. I mean, John Coltrane is never boring. It didn't last long in my collection, and I traded it back to a used record store shortly afterwards. It has a distinction of being the only recording with Coltrane on it that I've ever traded back. Perhaps a year later, I picked up Bill Evans's Sunday at the Village Vanguard album. I couldn't stand that one either. It's also supposed to be an incredible album to listen to for the bass playing of Scott LaFaro. I couldn't hear it. Maybe it was too cerebral. Maybe it had too light a touch in his playing. A million jazz fans in the world must think I'm an idiot for not liking Bill Evans. I have discovered in creating these podcasts that 20-something me had a narrow, juvenile view of not just jazz, but of all music. It was either great or it was not. If critics loved music by an artist and I did not enjoy it, I felt irritable. I don't know if it's because I felt insecure about my own tastes or if it felt like I was missing out on something, which, up until that time, had been an ongoing issue in my life. In Bill Evans' discography, there's an album called Everybody Digs Bill Evans. I borrowed that record out of the library, unwilling to throw good money after bad. At one point, while listening to it, I said out loud to no one in particular, No, not everybody does dig Bill Evans, my friend. It reminded me of something Brett Michaels once said about his band Poison. He said, love us or hate us, you can't ignore us. No, Brett Michaels, I can ignore you. I have actively been doing that for over 30 years now. You and your kind polluted the airways with your pop metal schlock for several years there, and some of the most important formative years of my life. Yes, I can be both petty and vindictive when it comes to music, and it's something I've had to work on.
does all this have to do with Art Tatum? There was a forum on the old Audio Galaxy website about 20 years ago where people with similar interests could talk about music together and download a bunch of songs, which I did. I remember mentioning that I had difficulties with Bill Evans, and everyone there who replied to my query seemed to know the secret handshake to understanding how great Bill Evans was. I also threw down the gauntlet and started my own thread of Art Tatum versus Bill Evans, who you got? Well, most people either preferred Bill Evans or said, why can't we have both? I'm not whining about it. My feelings weren't hurt, but I just didn't understand subjectivity, I guess. To my ears, Art Tatum was clearly the finest piano player that I'd ever heard, and Bill Evans, the least interesting. I suppose it should have prepared me for everything that divides us now, but it didn't. And I still don't understand how two complete and different realities could coexist in this country. was Willow Weep for Me from the complete Capitol recordings from the early 1940s. It's the first track I heard from Art Tatum that made me fall in love with his music. I made much of the idea in the Thelonious Monk episode that you could simply choose any one of the Thelonious Monk recordings that were out there and you would find an open door into his music. My strategy for you with Art Tatum would be similar in attack. I simply believe that you could pick up any one of his records and enjoy it. It doesn't matter if you record in the 1920s or the 1950s. I have selected several choice cuts in this podcast for you to ruminate on. Again, I think if you like what you hear, just go out and pick anything. If Tatum isn't your style, perhaps Bill Evans is more your role. If you want to merely dip your toes in the water to see what he's like, an album simply entitled Piano Starts Here might be a good choice for you. It has the versions of Tiger Rag and T for Two on it that appear in this episode. You could also try your hand at any one of the eight volumes of his solo masterpieces albums on the Pablo label, recorded just a couple years before he passed away in 1956. If you're looking for a more considerable study of Tatum, you might try the complete Capitol recordings from the early 1940s. These were actually the first recordings of Tatum that I ever heard. As I mentioned earlier, I especially loved his version of the song, Willow Weep for Me, and other tracks like Aunt Hagar's Blues and Indiana. But once I got a taste of what he could do on the piano, I had to trade those discs in for the full seven-disc box set of solo masterpieces on the Pablo label. This set of recordings has also been released under the name The Genius of Art Tatum. If there is such a thing as a genius in jazz, and I know that I've thrown that word out there a lot more in my podcast than I do in life, Tatum is it. There is a bit of overlap in some of the repertoires of the Capitol Recordings, but these versions are longer and arguably a whole lot better. One of the knocks on Art Tatum is that he didn't play well with others. His playing was so orchestral, so expansive, so all-encompassing that anyone else who played with him sounded gratuitous. I will admit that the younger version of myself believed this entirely. Why would I want to listen to anyone else when Art Tatum was right there? It's just like my earlier prejudice in not wanting to hear any singers in jazz. Why have them interrupt what I wanted to hear? 
I believe this is one of the reasons why so many people prefer Oscar Peterson's playing to Tatum's. Peterson plays beautifully with others. Whether it's in a trio setting, a full ensemble, or even a big band, there's something in Peterson's playing that just fits in well with everybody. I read a story, either on the Jazz Reddit or in the comment section of a YouTube video a while back, where someone met the legendary vibraphonist and band leader, Lionel Hampton. The fan couldn't be more effusive and glowing in his love and enjoyment of Hampton and the music he made throughout his career. Hampton appeared humbled and enjoyed the fan's feedback. However, the fan made a mistake in telling Hampton one of his favorite recordings was when he played with Tatum. He could see that he hit a sore spot as his demeanor changed immediately. I don't think it was his favorite session. In this clip from the version of Love for Sale, a minute and a half into his solo, it's like Hampton says, It's my solo, damn it! You're supposed to be accompanying me! Hampton has to contend with Tatum for the rest of the song. It's like Tatum can't help himself. Unlike every other artist I've covered so far, Art Tatum is not a composer. His repertoire consists mainly of the popular songs of the day, which we now refer to as the Great American Songbook. Composers like Gershwin, Berlin, Kern, Porter, Rogers, and Arlen make up a large fraction of the songs he most often played. Songs like The Way You Look Tonight, Someone to Watch Over Me, and Love for Sale. While he doesn't write songs, he does a lot more than just play them. I think he does a lot more than just improvise over the structure set in place while utilizing the melody. I think he does a lot more than merely embellish here and there. With his mind, I think he completely blows each song up. I think he sees how each song works. He keeps everything worth keeping and doesn't emphasize the rest. It sounds to me that after he blows them up, he puts the song back together in a way that the original composer never would have dreamed of. I watched a video recently of Stuart Copeland, the drummer for The Police. He explained that most of the drum tracks you hear on The Police records had been recorded 20 minutes to an hour after he first heard the song presented to him. He didn't have time to figure out his options. He didn't have time to figure out what might work best. He lamented that the song that went down in history is the version he understood the least, the version he hadn't really known what he was doing with yet. Why couldn't it have been the version he played six months later, while out on the road, after he figured it out? I dare say, while I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of every version of every one of these songs, they have to be among the greatest versions that have ever been recorded. A song like Blue Moon, which is more well-known in its doo-wop version by the Marcells but was a hit long before that. Maybe you've met someone like this in your life. 
Someone who sees the potential in you. Someone who sees what works for you and what doesn't. What should be emphasized and what should be left behind. Someone who sees who you are and how much more of you is left to discover. Someone who brings out the better parts of your angels. Whether it's a friend, a parent, a teacher, a coach, or a significant other. I've been fortunate enough to have met a lot of people who have helped forge who I am today. However, I dedicate this podcast to the one person who unlocked all the best parts of me. To the one person who took a chance on someone who didn't have much light in his life. To the one person who opened up her heart to me in a way no one had before. I dedicate this to the miracle that is my wife, Thea. That's Art Tatum performing the song T for Two. As the story goes, the famous classical pianist Vladimir Horowitz had played T for Two in front of Tatum, proud of all the hard work he had put into it for weeks. When Tatum showed what he could do with the song, Horowitz was shocked at what he heard. He requested the sheet music that Tatum used to play it, and Tatum just replied that he couldn't because he just improvised it. Horowitz wouldn't play the song again in public, but spent years attempting to duplicate what Tatum had performed in private. Honestly, while I think this is the shortest podcast I've done, it could have been shorter. I could have just said, there's a guy named Art Tatum, and he plays like this. I could have just played you a few 30-second clips. I think he's one of those guys where you just get hit right away with the feeling that his playing is out of this world. Or... He sounds too busy in his playing, and it's too all over the place for you. As I said, I can't help but think about Bill Evans and his lighter touch, his less is more approach. It's the antithesis to Art Tatum. I still don't understand why everyone thinks he's one of the greatest piano players, but recently I did come across one of his albums that I actually do dig. He recorded an album in 1977 called You Must Believe in Spring. There may be hope for me yet. I had a hard time attempting to give you any real insight to chew on, dear listeners. All I can say is that there's no man behind a curtain creating illusions when Art Tatum plays. It's sheer magic. I've talked before about how band members lock in and play together, and it seems like magic to me. I've talked about how songs are like these little miracles, making connections, transporting people back and forth in time. Well, Art Tatum performs magic every time his hands appear over the 88 keys on a piano. In a world that brings an endless supply of conflict and violence and indifference to our needs, with a constant deluge of information and none of it good, with trust and empathy and sensible conversation on the decline, and anxiety, fear, and bullshit on the rise, it just brings me hope that a human being can do what he did on a piano. God bless you. All my love, Chris. Another great episode. He makes it sound so easy. It's pretty unfair. Uh, my personal favorite is that cover of Blue Moon. I'm probably going to check that out right after this. Use it uh, to listen to while I'm putting up Halloween decorations with my wife. Uh, Chris's recommendations are as follows. Piano starts here. If you're just looking to stick your toes in the water. 
the complete capital recordings. If you want to wade in waist-deep into the pool, the solo masterpieces on Pablo 7-disc box set, if you want to dive right into the deep end, the group masterpieces, Tatum, Hampton, Hampton, and Rich, if you're feeling curious, Bill Evans, You Must Believe in Spring, because perhaps we can all agree on something, and Chris is feeling generous to Bill right now. Uh, pick one of those, give it a listen, then drop us a line, tell us what you think. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. You can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jazz or Twitter at audiojudojazz, or you can just email us at jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more of that at audiojudo.com or anywhere that podcasts are podcast. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>